Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the firm PSB Research, my new home. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So we in, we're in our new digs. We have new digs because uh, I have I a new do a job. a in this room. It's so large. This is a lot bigger than any of the places we've ever been in before. This may be the biggest place we've ever recorded the show, this yeah, room. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. So we are in a room at PSB Research, which is a uh, large research firm that has offices around the world. It's the sister firm of uh, Burson Marsteller, the PR firm. And uh, I'm going to be EVP. Well, I'm not going to be. I am. This is my day two here. <laughs> the EVP of the public affairs practice area. So um, I've figured out where the sound booth is, where the printers are, and where the coffee is. So... Off to a great start. That's pretty much all I got. <laughs> well, and in honor of this new uh, exciting career development for Margie, I brought her a present, which she has not opened yet. She's going to open right now on the show. Paper wrestling is back, people. <laughs> <laughs> but justifiably so. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Yay. <laughs> so a excellent. couple of months ago, Margie mentioned that she loves when you go on shows and they give you mugs with the show logo. Yes. And so now we have matching pollsters mugs like like a real show. Well, and because finally. of the way economies of scale work and these custom internet printy things, I have like a box of these now at my office because they're like two, you know. That's so, great. So uh, I've. I now have a, a handful of extras, so we'll have to come up with like some fun giveaway. Yes, yeah, some sort of contest. I will take a couple with me down to Apor to like hand out. We should come up with some kind of like like secret thing. Like oh, at the end of the show, if you listen all the way through to the right. end of the show, if you come up and find me at Apor and you say the following code word, I'll give you a mug. Oh, that's yes, that's a good. Okay, let's do that. We'll for have next to think week's about show. that. We'll have to think about that. We'll do it for next week's show. Um, and uh, Kristen will be at Apor, which is not next week, but the following week, or is uh, it no, next it's week? Next week. All right, I'll fly so... to Austin. Uh, yeah, on the twelfth. Oh, this is exciting. So there's all kinds of fun stuff. So in addition to this new move and our new mugs, which take our word for it, are, are fantastic. Thank you, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have an interview coming out. Um, next week with uh, Michael Dimmick, who's the president of Pew, talking about uh, all the work that Pew does, which we're going to talk about some today, uh, methodology and their role in the industry and, and his optimism about the industry. We had a great interview last week with Celinda and Ed. So they are, are, um, are by partnership, Kristen and mine started, uh, after an NPR hit and, but theirs started a piano bar in Budapest. Is that where they yeah. were? It's like my favorite part <laughs> of that interview. So when two pollsters walk into a bar, they come out with a great bipartisan 
uh, project. So you should take a listen we to that. We do need to get to a piano bar in Budapest at some point. Yeah, that for sounds sure. pretty excellent. For sure. Okay, so what are the top lines? Top lines. Donald Trump has locked up the nomination before Hillary Clinton. What is going on? Well, we had this whole section we were going to do on the show today about the GOP race. But since that's kind of moot, we'll spend a little bit of more time focusing on the Dem race that is still rolling. Is there data to back up the assertion that Sanders is hurting Clinton? And why should he stay in the race? Uh, we also have current projections showing Trump getting crushed in the Electoral College. Can he change course? And how much stock should we put in the polls at this point? Then we'll talk about the Milken Conference that Margie went to out in L.A., uh, where there's some new data that got released by the Shriver report in partnership with PSB on moms with Mother's Day coming up. We'll also talk about how parents can deal with their teens and cell phones. So, but first, it's the poll of the week, and today is Cinco de Mayo. Um, so that's you know big time in the spring, where it's a recognized celebration in the U.S. Some people say that the day commemorates Mexico's independence, but in fact. That's a different day. It's no, it's September 16th. So Cinco de Mayo is actually the day that the Mexican militia gained an unlikely victory over the French in the city of Puebla, reigniting a sense of patriotism and national pride. Uh, so this is a poll that came out last year from Univision um, where they did a survey of Hispanics in the U.S. They found that 62 percent of Hispanics have observed Cinco de Mayo occasionally or every year with half saying they celebrate it most or every year. And this was the part that I thought was the funniest and is probably completely true, that 69% of Hispanics feel that non-Hispanics don't actually understand what Cinco de Mayo is all about. <laughs> they would be right. They would be right. They would be right. <laughs> because this is the first I heard this, and I saw someone post it on Facebook today, too. I was like, oh, I should look into that, because maybe... Maybe we shouldn't be celebrating this or, you know, like what, it, what it, maybe it's like some. Yeah, it, we you know, people just like guacamole and margaritas and it seems like a good opportunity. I, I love actually celebrating other countries, big national days. About a week ago, it was King's Day, which is the big national holiday in the Netherlands. It's my favorite. I'm is not that the one where they bring out the herring for the year. Oh, maybe there was a lot of fish going on at that at the party at the embassy. Yeah. So it's like my favorite holiday. I was in the Netherlands two years ago. And it's like all these people wear bright orange and they walk around like they ride on boats through the canals in Amsterdam. And it's just so much fun. So we we went to the embassy. I'm not Dutch. My husband's not Dutch. People spoke to us in Dutch at the party, like as if we were, you know, Dutch expats. Right. Like, no, we're just Looky lose who saw an open bar for fifteen bucks. Right, and they're like, "Oh, they're like, that's okay." <laughs> and love your country. We speak seven we other love. languages. Which of those would you like me to yeah, speak? Yeah, but it was funny. I mean, I, the whole time we were actually in the Netherlands, everybody just spoke to us in English. Even yeah. if we were like, you know, I've got my little app. I'm like trying to learn how to say thank you. No, in Dutch. they don't like, care. They... No, but then here, everybody talked to us in Dutch until we were like. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, no, I'm just here saying? for the herring, um, <laughs> which is really fantastic. Um, so that is our poll of the week. That's excellent. But, um, and that's a good way to just kind of take a moment to have a little fun before we get into <laughs> the very, very serious business of... We have a nominee, folks. Uh, our new Republican nominee, Donald Trump. Um, I was watching the results on Twitter on a plane, which is, you know, not normally how I like to watch my results. But and I saw Kristen, you had a tweet that bounced around quite a bit. Yes. That uh, it captured part of like the mood. 600 retweets, which is like probably my most popular tweet of my life, uh, where I all I tweeted was that when I was 18, I signed up to be a Republican because I thought free markets and liberty were important. 
and now I don't know what Republican means, which I think a lot like Washington Post picked it up. It wound up in a Hillary for America press release. Like, I'm not leaving the Republican Party. Right. Well, first of all, the pollsters would then not be bipartisan anymore if you became a Democrat. Not to make this about me, but I just want to make sure you stay Republican for a little bit longer. But, I mean, there are lots of different ways to be Republican. So Senator Ben Sass went on a very uh, fun tweet storm last night. He's been like the general of the never Trump army in the U.S. Senate, uh, where he makes the case that there are lots of different ways to be Republican. And I think this is a cool topic that we should explore on this show in the future. What do people think the Republican Party stands for? Pollsters out there who work in the media, this would be a really great question to throw on your next survey. Try to figure out what do people define as core Republican principles? Because I think Trump represents in some ways, in my view, a departure from what the word has meant to me for the last 14 years of my life. So the part, but calling him not conservative, though, hasn't been and you've made this point. That's not that has not turned anybody off to no. him because a shockingly low number of Republican voters care about conservative purity. That's what we have seen, mm-hmm. I think, out of this primary, mm-hmm. that there was this idea that you could just whoever ran the furthest to the right would win. Donald Trump is like a 9-11 truther. He says nice things about Planned Parenthood. He talks about, no, we need to protect Social Security and Medicare and not reform them. And in his speech accepting the nomination, he's like, we need more infrastructure spending. I mean, like, he's just a different kind of guy. So (laughs) at at any rate. um, And those are some of his nice, the nice things he said. (laughs) Those are actually some of his. At least from my from where I sit, some of his better better moments. Oh yes. Um, so anyhow, at this point now, the the Trump nomination is is a thing. We will, I guess, no longer have to look into like p- primary polling from California. You know, this is right. uh, who does better, Cruz, Kasich, or Trump. Right. Uh, but the the one thing in terms of the polling out of Indiana is, I think it was NBC Marist who put out a poll on Sunday that had. Trump up by like 15 or so. And I think that wound up being about the margin that he won by. So, you know, there were some polls showing the margin was much closer. The most recent poll had shown Trump blew that margin out. And sure enough, he did. So yet again, the polls were right. The polls on the Republican side, at least, have not been broken. The interpretation of the polls have been broken. Right. So that's really the polling story here. And that was the story that was interesting to watch it just by watching Twitter on a plane is that, you know, we've known that Trump was headed to this number for a long time. We're talking about the Trump bump. Almost a year ago, right? And, <laughs> and you know, I remember I was, did one of those scenarios for 538 and lots of folks waited and, and the average of everybody's scenario was just under 1237. And in my scenario, in order for him to be held under 1237, he had to lose a bunch of northeastern mid-Atlantic states, which, which of course he didn't. He uh, won all of them. Um, and those, you know, because they were winner, some of them were winner take all. Um, he had to, that was the only way he could stay lower was if somebody prevented him from taking all, whoever that was, Kasich or somebody. But, you know, that didn't happen. So then, you know, there was no way that he would not make 1237. Then everyone somehow was shocked that that this happened. Like it just kind of came out of nowhere. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, when the polling had shown that Trump was going to do well in Indiana, and even if he hadn't done as well as he had, 
guess what? It was still pretty darn close. I mean, it was just, I guess, the finale of it, the finality of it that made people. Cruz unexpectedly dropping out that, that part... night, like not going to fight on till the end. Yes. It, I mean, at that point, I think that was what was the most surprising was like, sure, Trump may get close to 1237, but is there enough ambiguity with some of these unpledged delegates and all of this mayhem and like. Right. White nope, night this and. Not going to happen. Right. So. Here we are. I know. and But, I mean, then you see – I mean, the other thing – there are a couple other things that were still interesting from this. I mean, one, there's still this gender gap in Trump's support, right? Remember, Trump has been going bonkers talking about Clinton and the gender card and all this insanity, right? You know, saying she's too, yelling too much. Um, he's had a b- bad run of press in terms of his uh, views on women and his comments on women. As we've discussed on the show before, he gets a lot more support among Republican men than he does among Republican women, even if he leads with women. Even if he wins with women, he still wins with men by a larger margin. And that was, again, true in Indiana. That shows that even within his own party, even if you have Republican women who will maybe vote for him in a general election, even against Clinton, he's still not really – you know, he still has a real problem, even within his own party. Yeah, and we and we're not going to talk too much today about the general election polling itself. Um, and in part, that's because I would expect those numbers will change quite a bit in the next week. Not necessarily making Trump much much stronger, but you've got a lot of folks right now who are saying, "I would vote for neither of them. I'm undecided." And I think now that you have Trump as the definite nominee. You will see some people begin to rally around him. Right. Who a week ago would have told a pollster like, heck no, I'm never Trump. Well, never is does not mean never for a lot of people. And we're right. starting to see a lot of big Republican luminaries start to coalesce around him. So will that start happening in the polls? Could that you know, give him a two or three point bump. So we'll talk right. more general election polling next week right. once the dust has settled and a few new polls have come out. Right. I mean, here's the other thing that, I, you know, my take on this as a Democrat watching Trump win is that, you know, clearly at this point, he is the most beatable of the Republicans, right? He's more beatable than folks who were never going to win like Kasich or Bush or who were never really you know, seemed beloved by their primary electorate, but would have done quite well in a general election because they would have seen, seen, been seen as not so extreme or erratic. Trump obviously has all kinds of vulnerabilities, but this race will get closer. Like there is no doubt about it. This general election matchup, like, you know, you see these big numbers where Clinton or Sanders uh, can beat Trump by double digits, CNN poll, the average at Huffington Post, wherever it, that will change. Like there is no way that that just stays like that from, in, from now until the end. I mean, the upshot New York Times has some averages where they they look at state level polling to come up with projections of the Electoral College. And Clinton wins hands down right now. She narrows, you know, she still wins if the if Trump does uh, five points better. Um, but he wins if he does 10 points better. And so, uh, you know, that's that's not out of the realm of possibility. That's why I was nothing is out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was not. And I, I, too, was a never Trump person, because um, even if he seems more beatable, it is just the stakes are just too high that to take a chance on somebody who is both, you know, both traffics and racist, sexist, hateful language and is dangerously unqualified, simultaneously <laughs> completely unqualified to be president. So um, so that's, you know, I, I it's comforting as a Democrat to look at these numbers. But, you know, make no mistake, these numbers will get tighter and then everyone really is going to panic. Yeah. I think the one thing that was really key for Trump is if you look at the uh, Huffington Post pollster averages um, within the Republican primary, 
nationally. And again, there's not a ton of value to these national polls in projecting how the race will go, but it's an important barometer of did this person win over a majority of support in their party? And right there at the end, Trump crossed that 50 percent threshold. Right. The argument was always, look, Trump doesn't represent a majority of Republicans. I said that a lot. I said, right. I don't think Donald Trump represents a majority of Republicans. Six out of 10 Republicans voted for somebody other than Trump in their primary, right. supposedly. So, you know, he didn't win a majority of Republican votes. But now at the end, these national polls have shown uh, he's at 51.7 percent, Cruz only at 25, Kasich at almost 15. So even – I mean that was part of the theory was people say, oh, well, we need we needed somebody to get Trump one-on-one. But that was right. always based on this flawed theory that somebody's second choice was never Trump. Yeah. It, that wasn't the case. Usually right. about half of these people would bleed off and Trump was their second choice. Right. So here we are. We yeah. The and, nominee. and we did – well, we – at purple, when I was at purple, there was a purple Bloomberg poll. Uh, I think it was a uh, Super Tuesday states that showed, and we and we had done head to heads of Cruz versus Trump and Kasich versus Trump. Maybe I'm misremembering some of the details, but Trump won in those two. I mean, this you know, the, it was wrong to think that a head to head would have just taken him out. That wasn't that wasn't the case. Obviously, he benefited from a crowded field where he could sort of be, you know, it was him swatting on everybody else, but still. I don't think this would have changed if somebody had dropped out earlier and narrowed the field. A I mean, bit maybe more. It, I, I think it would have had to have been a lot earlier. Like if this race had started Trump, Rubio, Cruz, maybe we'd be looking at something different because somebody like a Rubio could have, co- you know, pulled in all of the support that got splintered between a Jeb and a Walker and whatever. But I mean, you really have to hop in a time machine. Right. And and you still the odds of that even right out or yeah who knows yeah so, exactly exactly so we have a nominee Donald Trump has locked it up before Hillary Clinton formally locked it up on the Democratic side so let's talk a little bit about what's going on over there so the Democratic side and it, it, you know it's interesting because well obviously the Republican side is crazy town um, and. <laughs> You know, they're all I'm these supposed to be defending my side, but like I'm just too despondent it's, right it's, now. <laughs> no, it's I mean, it's it's look, you know, it doesn't it's isn't even a crazy town is an objective <laughs> analysis. It's a scientific term. Because if you look at the exit polls from Indiana, they say the same thing that exit polls from New York and Maryland, Pennsylvania have all shown that uh, Republican primary voters say that their primary is divisive. It's not energetic. Only 40 percent say it's energizing their primary. The rest, a majority, say it's been divisive. The reverse is true on the Democratic side. Indiana exit polls showed again what has been uh, what we've seen in other other places, where a majority of Democrats say that the primary has been energizing for them. And if you look at the Survey Monkey poll that came out, I think Monday, just thirty percent of Clinton voters—these were Clinton voters—said that uh, Sanders should drop out right now. And you had a lot more Republicans say that Cruz and Kasich should drop out than Clinton voters saying that Sanders should drop out. Um, and she's winning states. I mean, she didn't win Indiana, but she's uh, she obviously did very well the fo- the previous week, and uh, excuse me, and has been strong in fundraising. And her head to heads versus Trump and her favorables, those haven't really changed as a result, I think, of what's been going on in the primary. So it's hard. And again, obviously, when I say this, you know, folks should know the disclosure. My husband's on Team Sanders. But, uh, you know, I, I'm just looking at the polls and I think the polls tell a different story than what uh, folks you know, insiders are saying, just like insiders on the Republican side feel very differently about the primary and the never Trump movement movement than Republican primary voters. 
I think people feel a lot more differently uh, in the Democratic primary electorate than Democratic insiders. At least that's my sense looking at the data and seeing how strongly people feel here in town about the Democratic race that that's hurting Clinton. I just am not seeing the evidence. I mean, I know it's resources that are devoted, but she's also been traveling to general election states. And, you know, for her to not spend time in Indiana, instead spend time in Ohio, I think that's even losing Indiana. I still think that that's a good calculation because she has a strong enough delegate lead that it's okay. So anyway, so that's how I view this. I'm sure... Folks will tweet or secretly have a <laughs> secretly think something <laughs> and mean thoughts about me and think and disagree, which is fine. I just looking at the polling data, I don't see the same evidence that this is divisive on the Democratic side. Well, in, in this NBC News Survey Monkey poll, you have 57 percent who say that Sanders should stay in the race through the convention. Um, I mean, that's 89 percent of Sanders voters, but it's even one out of four Clinton voters who say, yeah, let Bernie Sanders stay in. Her problem has never been that Democratic voters are choosing Bernie Sanders because they don't like her. Her problem has been that they're choosing Bernie Sanders because they like Bernie Sanders. But that doesn't translate into, oh, you've been irreparably damaged and these people are all going to stay home. And plus, it's real easy to say, oh, I'm going to stay home. But – She's going to start running ads of Donald Trump saying Donald Trump things. Well, she has. Whole... It came out today. Yes. Excellent ad. There, there was an ad that came out. It was all about <laughs> the ad about unity and Donald Trump saying, I'm going to have unity in the party. And then he has all of these Republican luminaries. Uh, you've got Mitt Romney. Uh, you've got all you know all of his primary opponents. It kind of ends with Jeb Bush just like verklempt. Like he yeah. needs therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I got a good chuckle. Lindsey Graham. It made, I mean, me, it made me miss Jeb. Yeah, I'm not lie. yeah. Everybody. I mean, everybody was very strong. It was a really strong ad because everyone was very forceful in their denouncing uh, of him, and I, I thought it was very strong. And so, and the other thing that's too, an example of a primary hurting someone in the general. That's not like somebody saying like, um, I think they might be unqualified. Maybe because they took super PAC money. Like, that is such softball compared to the things that people said about Donald Trump on the Republican side. I mean, side. Uh, look, we know what it looks like when people foam at the mouth when they talk about Hillary Clinton. And it doesn't look like the Sanders campaign. It looks like Donald Trump. It looks like all, you know, crazy people on Twitter. I mean, it, you know, we've got 30 years of experience knowing what that looks like. And it just doesn't look like the Democratic primary debate. It just doesn't. Well, so we will come back to you next week with a little bit more to chat about what the general election looks like. Hopefully we'll have some fresh data now that things have settled out a little bit more on the Republican side and we can begin talking more about what we think this race is going to look like. At the moment, you have Donald Trump down by a lot. The uh, If the polling holds, he would lose in the Electoral College 347 to 191. Um, this projection has him losing a state like North Carolina. Uh, you know, this is the sort of thing where Trump would really be on the defense in a lot of, say, southern states with lots of black voters or um, states, you know, maybe a state like Arizona, which in one sense is the perfect Trump state and in another sense has a lot of Latino voters who are potentially terrified of a Trump presidency. Um and again, you know, he's able to improve his standing, but even if he goes up by five points, he still uh, trails and would need a state like a Florida, a North Carolina, an Ohio. Uh, he would need he would need a couple of states like that to start falling into his category. So the other big story, and I actually realize I don't think I said this in the top lines. Surprise, listeners, you're getting <laughs> a story 
that's really, really interesting. Well, we, we alluded to it in our we, opening we, chit-chat. We alluded to it. Um, so the Pew uh, Research Center always does just the best reports analyzing new methodologies and – you know, how do you survey hard to reach populations? What does this new, brave new world look like? And so they put out um, a report this past week studying what we call sort of probability online polls. Um, to just give like a very brief explanation, you know, most online polling is, you know, non-probability, right? You're not sampling by just randomly calling phone numbers and seeing who picks up. You know, you've got a, a collection of people who have kind of opted in in some way and then you're sampling from that. And so there are now methods that will use – So not every single person has an equal probability of being in your sample that's frame. Right. That's um, or, an, it... or even a known probability of right. being in your sample frame. So that's so – but there are now efforts – there have been efforts over the last couple of years to try to make – replicate probability polling in an online environment. And so what Pew did is they did a study where about – I think just under 10 – I think they did like nine online surveys using different platforms, different sample providers. You know, I assume it's folks like – a SurveyMonkey, a YouGov, a GFK, Knowledge Network, Research Now. Research Now. You know, they don't name any names in this report, which good Other for them. Other than theirs. They just identify. Other than theirs. They identify where they fall, but they don't identify anybody else. So they now have run an analysis of how good and representative each of these, uh, each of these panel providers are, which knowing – names would be so valuable for someone like me in determining right. which panel do I want to use. But of course, understandably, they would probably upset a lot of people if they. Right. But one of their – one of the samples, they they gave them all, you know, letters, sample A, sample B, sample C. Whatever sample I was consistently outperformed the others. So I'm like dying to know. At I APOR, know. I'm going to find you pew people. We're going to have a couple cocktails and I'm going to ask you who sample I is. And you need they to won't tell, tell me. You. I know they won't tell me, but I'm dying to know. I, I mean, I interviewed Michael Dimmick. And so that's where we're going to release the president of Pew. I'm like, why? Why not release the names? Who is sample I? I need to know who sample I it's is. like, well, you know, this is just, a, you know, I mean, one argument is like, this is a one time thing. This is not. It wouldn't be fair to say, oh, fair. panel provider X is terrible because they came in the bottom. People can overread, you know, read into things. People aren't always good consumers of this type of information right, either. Right. But so the key findings um, were, were really interesting and valuable for people like, you know, practitioners in the field who know that phone polling is running into all of these challenges and want to do online research well. Um, so in general, some of the key findings were that, one, in general, if you had a sample that had a more elaborate weighting and sampling procedure and a longer field period, you produced more accurate results. So if you're in kind of a rush and you're just like – uh, give me the first thousand people you can find. You're going to get garbage data. If you spend more time in the field and are more complicated in how you pull your sample, that worked out better. Um, all of the samples evaluated included more politically and civically engaged individuals than should be present based on like good government data, which is probably bad if you're looking to do consumer research. And actually winds up not being that much of a problem if you're doing political research. Right, because if taking a poll is 
some sort of political engagement act in itself and you're trying to find voters and you are having fewer of the people who just are simply checked out of all kinds of engagement totally, then, you know, maybe that's not the worst. It's, if you're going to err on one side, maybe that's not it's biased, terrible. but it's yeah. not like the world's worst bias. Right, because you do want people who are going to show like up and vote. Like a left-right bias would be bad, but a more engaged, less engaged bias isn't horrible. Um, that most of the samples had a disproportionately high share of adults who don't have kids, live alone, collect unemployment benefits, and are low income. And part of the hypothesis is that, you know, those are folks that have more time to, like, sit at home taking online surveys. Interestingly, this idea that you live alone, collect unemployment benefits, and are lower income lines up kind of nicely with some of the things we know about Trump supporters. And there was always this, you know, I think we've, we've talked about this on the show before, that Trump would overperform in these online studies. This actually kind of – this could be a, an explanation for a little bit of that, that mm-hmm. you know, we've now seen studies of people that have less social connection, are more likely to support Trump. and Angry that li- government. Yeah, and this is lining up with the sorts of people who may be taking these online surveys. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I mean, these are folks that are sometimes very hard to find using telephones, certainly using landlines. Maybe those are folks you, you would need cell phones. And right. th- those are folks who are sometimes harder to find through phone – Technologies, Right. Um, they also found that if you're using these online non-probability samples, you are at risk of drawing erroneous conclusions about race and ethnicity that they found. Basically, you, you can – even if you have a study that has like the right proportion of Hispanics or the right proportion of African Americans, just because you're supposed to have 15 percent Latinos and you get 15 percent Latinos – those Latinos might not be the same, might not be representative of Latinos nationwide. So, you know, one of their big findings was it doesn't do much good to get the marginal distribution correct if the people you're sampling are still systematically different, even within their own race or gender or whatever demographic. Yeah, I thought that was one of the bigger takeaways from this analysis. Um, And it was something, it was a problem with all the panels. I mean, some panels did better than others, but it was one of the larger sources of error in all of these online panels. Um, So Pew's, uh, they've said, you know, ours does not stand out in the study. So Pew has their own panel where they track trends. And they found that they were not consistently more accurate than the non-probability panels. And theirs is a probability-based panel. So theirs is they will call people on the, or they'll mail things to people so that everybody does have a known chance of being invited to participate. So they factor in people who don't have the internet or don't participate online anyway. So they count theirs as probability-based. And they found that theirs wasn't significantly better, although it does rank higher than a lot of the other ones on a, a variety of metrics, but it wasn't like the best. Sample I was the best. And we don't know who Sample I is. Um and it said that it ranked first on nearly all of the dimensions considered. And the clues about who sample I is, it said they used things beyond basic demographics to adjust their sample, including weights on things like ideology. Now, this is really controversial. Um, the idea is that typically when you're weighting survey data, you want to weight it based on known demographic characteristics. You are registered as a Republican or a Democrat. You are black or white. You are male or female. Things that don't change right. from day to day based on what's going on in the Whereas news. Whereas something like how much you use the internet, what your ideology is, those are normally considered survey outcomes. Not the sort of thing you want to wait on. It's the sort of thing you're trying to find with the survey. And this sample I waited on some of those characteristics. And this was something at my old firm, my boss, David, he always liked to wait on ideology as well as party. And this is really controversial. There are lots of pollsters that will say, 
waiting on party is bad. Waiting on ideology is crazy. But then there are some that think it's a good idea, and David always did it. And this is sort of affirming that maybe maybe there is something there, that waiting not just on party but on ideology hmm. can fix some of this sample bias. Because there was a time – I think I have this right. That Gallup in particular would show a lot of fluctuations. I don't know which presidential race it was. I don't know if it was 12. It might have been eight or earlier um, where they were not waiting on party ID because that's, you know, that's fluid. That's you don't know that sometimes you could wake up and say, you know, I don't like. I don't like anybody. Today I'm an independent. And then if you're waiting them, you're kind of putting people in the wrong box. So they would not wait by party and that would cause fluctuations that would make people say, oh my God, you know, this is the, the race has changed by two points. Everyone panic. Um, and they just happen to call two points more there's Republicans just a, or Democrats. Right. If you're waiting for that stuff, you're holding that kind of stuff constant. So at any rate, um, you know, it's still controversial, but I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uh, and last but not least, what they did find was that all of the samples indicated that U.S. adults consider themselves Democrats more than Republicans. Um, and although as a group, they all tilt more Democratic than if you do a, fir- a, a, a telephone survey. So if you do a phone survey with cell phones and landlines, you get a less Democratic sample than if you're just online. Um, and all of the samples show that Democrats and Republicans are polarized with respect to their attitudes about the proper scope of government. Well, I guess that's always true, no Surprise. matter how you talk to them in person, over the phone, online. So listeners, thank you for slogging through that like deep methodological discussion. Well, I mean, I think the one key point of this, one other key point of this, is that doing online polling, you know, there are challenges to it, but it's not... It's not wrong. It's not some disaster. It's not – I mean people are doing it now more often because it's so much less expensive right? and you can't do it in congressional races or legislative races because you don't have enough sample or you don't know exactly what the political boundaries are. You're not sure if you know, folks live there. So there are challenges to moving to online easily as cost-efficiently in some smaller races. But for national polling or statewide polling, it's becoming far more common. It's already industry standard in the corporate world. Um, and this, these, this new study by Pew suggests that, you know, that's okay. Like we don't need to worry that somehow going online is wrong, even though we still have this feeling that we prefer live calls. That's what news outlets sort of prefer. I certainly remember Chuck Todd mentioned in interview way back when around Thanksgiving last year. So, um, but I, I, I think this is optimistic for it. it should, we should look at toward online polling with a little bit more optimism now looking at, unless you're using sample D because that one panel D does not look like sample, that one. Sample D struggled a little bit. Um, But I I don't want to know who Sample D is. I mean, unless I'm using Sample D for my client work. Hopefully not. I really want to know who Sample I is, though. (laughs) Come on. It's saying something nice about them. You don't have to reveal anybody else. No, I know. Uh, I asked. I asked. They wouldn't wouldn't give it up. He wouldn't give it up. Um, so there are a couple other uh, polls that came out this week that I think are pretty interesting, certainly interesting uh, for moms like me, but even for non-moms. So Common Sense Media, so that's the group that I think does all the ranking ratings of is this television show good or bad for kids, like just focuses on media consumption for kids. And they did a poll um, with Lake Research Partners. Remember, we had Celinda on the show last week, so that's her firm um, on teens and their devices, which is a little bit different than is the show too violent or whatever. But it was still really interesting because this is obviously a problem. Anybody with an older kid 
worries about. Um, certainly, I worry about about, my, about myself. <laughs> I want to answer these questions about myself. Um, and overwhelmingly, people worry that their teens are addicted to their mobile devices. 59% of parents feel that way. Oh, even 50% of teens feel this way. This is something that I hear a lot in focus groups with parents. It comes up organically, even if you're not asking about devices and you're like, well, how are things going today? And so, you know, the, the world is becoming an, an unpleasant place because kids are always on their cell phones. That's like point three as a, like a proof point as to why things are not as good as they used to be. And you really see that in the study that they have fights with their teens about their devices almost every day. About a third say they have a fight with their teens about their devices and every day. What I thought was really interesting about this study is they did one study of parents and one study of teens. And there's actually a lot of alignment in both the self-assessment and then what the other side said about them. So, for instance, you know, 59 percent of parents say my kids are addicted to devices. And then 50 percent of kids say, yeah, we're addicted to devices. 28 percent of kids say my parents are addicted to devices. And then 27 percent of parents say, yeah, I'm addicted to devices. And the same thing on this argument question. You have 32 percent of teens who also say, yeah, my parents argue with me on a daily basis. So it's not as yeah. though parents and kids have a dramatically different interpretation I know, right? of what's going on. This is – I just can't believe a third are fighting over devices on a daily basis. That's a lot of conflict. I don't know what you do. I, I, it just makes me nervous thinking, especially since I know I'm setting such a bad example. I had a friend who posted on Facebook that her son – said to her husband, you know, you're my daddy. You're not the phone's daddy. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. And I oh. I saw that and I did not think anything judgmental about this person. Oh. I thought, oh, my God, that could easily have been yeah. something my children oh. would say about me. So um, so anyway, yes, I need help. But this is a cry for help. <laughs> um, the, the podcast, which folks don't listen to, they should, Note to Self, it's all about people's relationship with technology, like a personal relationship with technology. So they did a whole thing about how do you organize your photos or should you just let it go, like that whole thing, right? And they did stuff on you know, taking apps off your phone or getting rid of your phone for a day or two and how to do that. And they just put us on a list of women-hosted podcasts, which we appreciate. But anyway, I listen to that, and it makes it would make me a little anxious. Like, I want to do that. I can't do that. But, but I can see why at least other people want to do that. I appreciate that that's an effort and a project that other people are working on. But I thought, I don't know. I can't can't do it. Anyway, so teens are also worried as much as adults. Um, so that we'll link to that in the show notes, as we always do. Um, and then the last thing, since it's Mother's Day this weekend, there's some Mother's Day polling turned out done by uh, PSB, the firm where I am now, in uh, conjunction with um, uh, Save the Children and uh, Mark and Maria Shriver. Um, and it was presented at the Milken Co- Global Conference in LA, which is where I went this past week to be on a panel with a variety of pollsters. And I'll link to that panel in the show notes uh, and our webpage so folks can take a look at it. But this was a study about what mom's want, uh, what moms would like. And instead of things like flowers, it asks about things like, um, you know, workplace flexibility and, and paid leave and, and, uh, and college affordability and that sort of thing. How many, uh, how much time you spend doing household chores, those kinds of pressures that a lot of moms feel. Um, and it, it, some of these results, I mean, it's pretty interesting, right? So the, uh, I think one of the main things I think was most worrying is that 53% of majority of moms feel that America is becoming a worse place to raise children. I mean, that's a pretty sad 
sad number. I mean, that's, you know, even though 90% are optimistic about their children's future, they feel America is getting worse. And again, this is like a, very much like some of the stuff I've seen in the Walmart mom work that I've done. It's very similar that you have to feel optimistic about your own family because otherwise that's an unpleasant place to be. But you can at the same time feel very, very pessimistic about the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. You also have 55 percent who say that they report living paycheck to paycheck. And there's a a sort of an interesting slash depressing article you can read. I think The Atlantic put out about people who – if they had to come up with $400 today to deal with some kind of emergency, they couldn't do it. They couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency, that there's this huge slice of people. And it's not just low-income people, that it's – there are a lot of folks that are not financially stable and this is really leading to a lot of anxiety. And so a lot of American mothers fall into that that boat of – of living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And also sort of similar to the cell phone study we were just talking about, f- moms were very much conflicted about the role technology plays. 50% say it's had a positive effect. 50% said it's had a negative effect. And this is, I think, a question that's written a little bit more broadly and a little bit more optimistically than, you know, is your teen using their device too frequently, which we know that's going to have a bad result. This is technology writ large. And even there with that kind of question, people are more divided. And here's the last thing that I I saw that also spoke to me as a parent of a mom, of a daughter, sorry, and a son, is that more moms rank independence as a top quality they want for their daughters than rank it as their top quality that they want for their sons. And I I, I love that finding. <laughs> um, and, and the other thing that I thought was interesting, so back, oh gosh, like three years ago, I did all that research for the college Republicans and I asked millennials, you know, what two or three words do you most wish your friends would use to describe you? And the top responses were intelligent, caring, and hardworking. And then I looked at these results and it says that the, the words that uh, moms most want, you know, qualities that they want in their kids – was those same three things, mm-hmm. intellectually curious, which I, I sort of map onto being the same as intelligent, you know, in the same bucket, caring, and then successful, which I think can map into hardworking. Like that that to me was just fascinating that the same top three things popped up in my millennial study three years ago and now have stopped popped up here as what moms want for their kids. Yeah. No, it's funny. And the list is slightly different, though, for – um, girls versus boys. Versus, girls versus boys that for moms want for their sons, honorable and committed to family. I mean, it's just really interesting because I make this joke and it's funny now that the data actually backs this up. Like, And it's p- partly because my daughter is the first, right, that I, you know, want her to move on to the next thing and, you know, learn how to do that yourself. Like, OK, you can get dressed yourself. You can do X, Y and Z yourself now. And for my son, I mean, he's now it's just still a baby, but. You know, you just he just wants to sit on my lap and eat food. I'm like, you know, take your time. Like, <laughs> what's the rush? Like, <laughs> have another biscuit, you know? <laughs> like, and so, I, I mean, I, I am very much, I don't know where this comes from, you know, but it's borne out by the data. I'm not alone in that regard. Uh, well, so there's finally some studies done by uh, Stacy's Snacks. They make the pita chips, right? I think so, yes. And I think they're owned by, they make the pita chips, but they're owned by, like, Pepsi or Frito-Lay or one of those like larger Gotcha. Um, so 71% of moms with children living at home say they would appreciate some alone time on Mother's Day. I love this finding. Um, nearly all moms, 9 out of 10, say they would also appreciate a snack her family cooked or prepared just for her. When it comes to gifts, mom wants a fun family outing where she's treated like a queen or a handwritten note expressing the family's love and appreciation. 
And when it comes to spending me time, most want a spa treatment. Yes. I like, I agree. I also agree with Stacy's snacks. <laughs> not a mom, but I also like snack Yes, I would like all those things. I'm not sure I'd want to see what snack everybody would bake for me. I think I'm, I'm good in that regard. Um, I like my own, being charged my own snacks, but everything else, <laughs> everything else sounds lovely. For Mother's Day, I am taking both kids by myself on a plane. That's a first for me. <sighs> To go to Florida because it's my grandmother's 90th birthday. Oh, I was going to say, I'm like, well, this sounds horrible. But then it it ended on a nice – And I I was going to like fly out and back the same day, you know, because I'm like, well, that's that's what I would do. I'm like, you know, I don't – just because I do that by myself all the time doesn't mean with two little kids that's going to be quite so easily. Well, maybe – hopefully because it's Mother's Day, you will have other passengers who will be – willing to help out and, and be supportive of of your adventure yeah no it's all right it's good it's all every time i do a thing like that i'm like this is skill building so yep. we'll see beckett's <laughs> never been on a plane so it'll be it's time to get time to get with the program <laughs> <laughs> time to start earning those miles and <laughs> contributing to the household <laughs> does beckett have a frequent flyer number <laughs> no lucy has a global entry number and a frequent flyer nice mile and um nice. for united but not for southwest which is what we're flying and beckett has like barely been out of Montgomery County. <laughs> He's got none of those things. <laughs> I'm afraid I got to get get on board. So again, this he could take his time, you know. She's going to be glad she has those miles his, when she gets yeah. like when she's a teenager and right, all of a sudden right. she's been banking them since she was that's a right. little kid. They're saying, you know, Becca's got all the time in the world. He just wants to sit in mom's lap and, you know, eat some food. That's quite all right. He doesn't need to get a passport quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> so what did we learn this week? So this week we learned, well, it's happy Cinco de Mayo, and uh, which we should all get used to celebrating because we may be moving to Mexico <laughs> if Trump becomes the nominee. Um, Only if the wall lets us go both ways. That's right. <laughs> I want a door in the wall so I can I can flee south. It'll be a big, beautiful door. And when it comes to this Republican primary, I want my money back. This was not how I thought the movie was supposed to end. Um, some of you are doing really great online polling and some of you perhaps are not so i guess situation status unchanged and this mother's day get your mom an improving america by joining the never trump movement hey <laughs> wait i'm not really fighting back against it too much you say you have to become a democrat just join the never trump movement some yeah. someone will lead someone will lead it to some kind of coordinated plan but it's got to sign, start signing up. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters. Individually, we're at Case Soltis Anderson and at Margie O'Mero. You can find us at www.thepolsters.com, where we'll have our show notes from each week. And you can also follow us on Facebook, where we will post articles that we might be discussing on the upcoming show. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And if you haven't written a review of the show yet, we would greatly appreciate it. Thanks, folks. Thank you. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.